Chapter Seven of the Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte M. Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. Pray, good shepherd, what fair swain is this that dances with your daughter? He sings several times faster than you will tell money. He utters them as he had eaten ballads, and all men's ears grow to his tunes. Winter's Tale. It was a glorious day in June, the sky of pure deep dazzling blue, the sunshine glowing with brightness, but with cheerful freshness in the air, that took away all sultriness, the sun tending westward in his long day's career, and casting welcome shadows from the tall firs and horse chestnuts that shaded the lawn. A long rank of haymakers, men and women, proceeded with their rakes, the white shirt-sleeves, straw bonnets, and ruddy faces, radiant in the bath of sunshine, while in the shady end of the field were idler haymakers among the fragrant piles. Charles half lying on the grass, with his back against a tall haycock, Mrs. Edmonston sitting on another, book in hand, Laura sketching the busy scene, the sun glancing through the checkered shade on her glossy curls. Philip stretched out at full length, hat and necktie off, luxuriating in the cool repose after a dusky walk from Broadstone. And a little way off, Amabel and Charlotte pretending to make hay, but really building nests with it, throwing it at each other, and playing as heartily as the heat would allow. They talked and laughed. The rest were too hot, too busy, or too sleepy for conversation. Even Philip being tired into enjoying the dulce farniete, and they basked in the fresh breezy heat and perfumey hay, with only now and then a word, till a cold black damp nose was suddenly thrust into Charles's face. A red tongue began licking him, and at the same moment Charlotte, screaming, "'There he is!' raced headlong across the swaths of hay to meet Guy, who had just ridden into the field. He threw Deloraine's rein to one of the haymakers and came bounding to meet her, just in time to pick her up as she put her foot into a hidden hole and fell prostrate. In another moment he was in the midst of the whole party, who crowded round and welcomed him as if he had been a boy returning from his first half-year schooling. And never did little schoolboy look more holiday-like than he, with all the sunshine of that June day reflected, as it were, in his glittering eyes and glowing face, while Bustle, escaping from Charles's caressing arm, danced round, wagging his tail in ecstasy, and claiming his share of the welcome. Then Guy was on the ground by Charles, rejoicing to find him out there, and then some dropping into their former nests on the hay, some standing round. They talked fast and eagerly, in a confusion of sound, that did not subside for the first ten minutes, so as to allow anything to be clearly heard. The first distinct sentence was Charlotte's. Bustle, darling old fellow, you are handsomer than ever. What a delicious day, next exclaimed Guy following Philip's example by throwing off hat and necktie. A spontaneous tribute to the beauty of the day. 
said Charles. Really, it is so ultra-splendid as to deserve notice, said Philip, throwing himself completely back and looking up. One cannot help reveling in that deep blue, said Laura. Tomorrow will be the happiest time of all the glad new year, hummed Guy. Ah, you will teach us all now, said Laura, after your grand singing lessons. Do you know what is in store for you, Guy? said Amy. Oh, haven't you heard about Lady Kilcaran's ball? You are to go, Guy, said Charlotte. I am glad I am not. I hate dancing. And I know as much about it as bustle, said Guy, catching the dog by his forepaws and causing him to perform an uncouth dance. Never mind, they will soon teach you, said Mrs. Edmonston. Must I really go? He begins to think it serious, said Charles. Is Philip going? exclaimed Guy, looking as if he was taken by surprise. He is going to say something about dancing being a healthful recreation for young people, said Charles. You'll be disappointed, said Philip. It is much too hot to moralize. Apollo unbends his bow, exclaimed Charles. The captain yields the field. Ah, Captain Morville, I ought to have congratulated you, said Guy. I must come to Broadstone early enough to see you on parade. Come to Broadstone? You aren't still bound to Mr. Lasalle, said Charles. If he has time for me, said Guy, I am too far behind the rest of the world to afford to be idle this vacation. That's right, Guy, exclaimed Philip sitting up and looking full of approval. With so much perseverance, you must get on at last. How did you do in collections? Tolerably, thank you. You must be able to enter into the thing now, proceeded Philip. What are you reading? Thucydides. Have you come to Pericles's oration? I must show you some notes that I have on that. Don't you get into the spirit of it now? Uphill work still, answered Guy, disentangling some cinders from the silky curls of Bustle's ear. Which do you like best, that or the ball? asked Charles. The hayfield best of all, said Guy, releasing Bustle and blinding him with a heap of hay. Of course, said Charlotte. Who would not like haymaking better than that stupid ball? Poor Charlotte, said Mrs. Edmonston, commiseration, which irritated Charlotte into standing up and protesting. Mamma, you know I don't want to go. No more do I, Charlotte, said her brother, in a mock, consoling tone. You and I know what is good for us and despise sublunary vanities. But you will go, Guy, said Laura. Philip is really going. In spite of Lord Kilcran's folly in going to such an expense as either taking Allenby or giving the ball, said Charles, I don't think it is my business to bring Lord Kilcran to a sense of his folly, said Philip. I made all my protest to Morris when first he started the notion, but if his father chose to take the matter up, it is no concern of mine. 
you will understand guy said charles that this ball is specially got up by morris for laura's benefit believe as little as you please of that speech guy said laura the truth is that lord kilcran is very good-natured and eveline was very much shocked to hear that amy had never been to any ball and i told me one and so it ended in their giving one when is it to be on thursday week said amy i wonder if you will think eveline as pretty as we do she is laura's great friend is not she i like her very much i have known her all my life and she has much more depth than those would think who only know her manner and laura looked pleadingly at philip as she spoke are there any others of the family at home said guy the two younger girls mabel and helen and little boys said amy lord de courcy is in ireland and all the others are away lord de courcy is the wisest man of the family and sets his face against absenteeism said philip so he is never visible here but you aren't going to despise it i hope guy said amy earnestly it will be so delightful and what fun we shall have in teaching you to dance guy stretched himself and gave a quaint grunt never mind guy said philip very little is required you may easily pass in the crowd i never learnt your ear will guide you said laura and no one can stay at home since mary ross is going said amy eveline was always so fond of her that she came and forced a promise from her by telling her she should come with mamma and have no trouble you have not seen allenby said laura there are such van dykes and among them such a king charles is not that the picture said charles before which amy oh don't charlie was found dissolved in tears i could not help it murmured amy blushing crimson there is all charles's fate in his face said philip earnest melancholy beautiful it would stir the feelings were it an unknown portrait no amy you need not be ashamed of your tears but amy turned away doubly ashamed i hope it is not in the ballroom said guy no said laura it is in the library charlotte whose absence had become perceptible from the general quietness here ran up with two envelopes which she put into guy's hands one contained lady kilcrane's genuine card of invitation for sir guy morville the other charlotte had scribbled in haste for mr russell this put an end to all rationality guy rose with a growl and a roar and hunted her over half the field till she was caught and came back out of breath and screaming we never had such a haymaking so i think the haymakers will say answered her mother rising to go indoors what ruin of haycocks oh i'll set all that to rights said guy seizing a hay-fork stop stop take care cried charles i don't want to be built up in the rick and by and by when my disconsolate family have had all the pawns dragged for me delarane will be heard to complain that they give him very odd animal food 
"'Who could resist such a piteous appeal?' said Guy, helping him to rise, and conducting him to his wheeled chair. The others followed, and when, shortly after, Laura looked out at her window, she saw Guy with his coat off, toiling like a real haymaker, to build up the cocks in all their neat fairness and height, whistling meantime the Queen of the May, and now and then singing the line. She watched the old cowman come up, touching his hat, and looking less cross than usual. She saw Guy's ready greeting, and perceived they were comparing the forks and rakes, the pooks and cocks of their counties. And, finally, she beheld her father ride into the field, and Guy spring to meet him. No one could have so returned to what was, in effect, a home, unless his time had been properly spent. And, in fact, all that Mr. Evanston or Philip could hear of him was so satisfactory that Philip pronounced that the first stage of the trial had been passed irreproachably, and Laura felt and looked delighted at this sanction to the high estimation in which she held him. His own account of himself to Mrs. Evanston would not have been equally satisfactory if she had not had something else to check it with. It was given by degrees, and at many different times, chiefly as they walked round the garden in the twilight of the summer evenings, talking over the many subjects mentioned in the letters which had passed constantly. It seemed as if there were very few to whom Guy would ever give his confidence, but that once bestowed, it was with hardly any reserve, and that was his great relief and satisfaction to pour out his whole mind where he was sure of sympathy. To her, then, he confided how much provoked he was with himself, his first term, he said, having only shown him what an intolerable fool he had to keep in order. By his account, he could do nothing without turning his own head, except study, and that stupefied it. Never was there a more idle fellow. He could work himself for a given time, but his sense would not second him. And was it not most absurd in him to take so little pleasure in what was his duty, and enjoy only what was bad for him? He had tried boating, but it had distracted him from his work, so he had been obliged to give it up, and had done so in a hasty and vehement manner, which had caused offence, and for which he blamed himself. It had been the same with other things, till he had left himself no regular recreation but walking and music. The last, he said, might engross him in the same way, but he thought, here he hesitated a little, there were higher ends for music, which made it come under Mrs. Edmondson's rule of a thing to be used guardedly, not disused. He had resumed light reading, too, which he had nearly discontinued before he went to Oxford, one wants something, he said, by way of refreshment, where there's no sea nor rock to look at, and no Laura and Amy to talk to. He had made one friend, a scholar of his own college, of the name of Wellwood. This name had been his attraction. Guy was bent on friendship with him, if, as he tried to make him out to be, he was the son of that Captain Wellwood, 
whose death had weighed so heavily on his grandfather's conscience, feeling almost as if it were his duty to ask forgiveness in his grandfather's name, yet scarcely knowing how to venture on advances to one to whom his name had such associations. However, they had gradually drawn together, and at length entered on the subject, and Guy then found he was the nephew, not the son of Captain Wellwood. Indeed, his former belief was founded on a miscalculation, as the duel had taken place twenty-eight years ago. He now heard all his grandfather had wished to know of the family. There were two unmarried daughters, and their cousin spoke in the highest terms of their self-devoted life, promising what Guy much wished, that they should hear what deep repentance had followed the crime which had made them fatherless. He was to be a clergyman, and Guy admired him extremely, saying, however, that he was so shy and retiring, it was hard to know him well. From not having been at school, and from other causes, Guy had made few acquaintance. Indeed, he amused Mrs. Edmonston by fearing he had been morose. She was ready to tell him he was an ingenious self-tormentor, but she saw that the struggle to do right was the mainspring of the happiness that beamed round him, in spite of his self-reproach, heartfelt as it was. She doubted whether persons more contented with themselves were as truly joyous, and was convinced that, while thus combating lesser temptations, the very shadow of what are generally alone considered as real temptations would hardly come near him. If it had not been for these talks, and now and then a thoughtful look, she would have believed him one of the most light-hearted and merriest of beings. He was more full of glee and high spirits than she had ever seen him. He seemed to fill the whole house with mirth, and keep everyone alive by his fun and frolic, as blithe and untiring as Maurice de Courcy himself, though not so wild. Very pleasant were those summer days, reading, walking, music, gardening. Did not they all work like very laborers at the new arbor in the midst of the laurels? where Charles might sit and see the spires of Broadstone. Work they did, indeed. Charles, looking on from his wheelchair, laughing to see Guy, sawing as if for his living, and Amy hammering gallantly, and Laura weaving osiers, and Charlotte flying about with messages. One day they were startled by an exclamation from Charles. Aha! Patty! is that you and beheld the tall figure of a girl advancing with a rapid springing step holding up her riding habit with one hand with the other whisking her coral-handled whip there was something distinguished in her air and her features though less fine than laura's were very pretty by the help of laughing dark blue eyes and very black hair under her broad hat and little waving feather. She threatened Charles with her whip, calling out, Aunt Edmundston said I should find you here. What is the fun now? Arbor building, said Charles. Don't you see the head carpenter? Sir Guy, whispered she to Laura, 
looking up at him, where he was mounted on the roof, thatching it with reed, the sunshine full on his glowing face and white shirt-sleeves. "'Here,' said Charles, as Guy swung himself down with a bound, his face much redder than sun and work had already made it. "'Here's another wild Irisher for you.' "'Sir Guy Morville, Lady Eveline de Courcy,' began Laura. But Lady Eveline cut her short, frankly holding out her hand and saying, "'You are almost a cousin, you know. Oh, don't leave off. Do give me something to do. That hammer, Amy, pray. Laura, don't you remember how dearly I always loved hammering?' "'How did you come?' said Laura. "'With Papa. Tis his visit to Sir Guy.' "'No, don't go.' As Guy began to look for his coat, he is only impending. He has gone on to Broadstone, but he dropped me here and will pick me up on his way back. Can't you give me something to do on the top of that ladder? I should like it mightily. It looks so cool and airy. How can you, Ava? whispered Laura, reprovingly. But Lady Eveline only shook her head at her, and declaring she saw a dangerous nail sticking out, began to hammer it in with such good will that Charles stopped his ears and told her it was worse than her tongue. "'Go on about the ball, do.' "'Oh,' said she earnestly, "'do you think there is any hope of Captain Morville's coming?' "'Oh, yes,' said Laura. "'I'm so glad. That is what Papa has gone to Broadstone about. Morris said he had given him such a lecture that he would not be the one to think of asking him.' and Papa must do it himself, for if he sets his face against it, it will spoil it all. "'You may make your mind easy,' said Charles. "'The captain is lenient, and looks on the ball as a mere development of Irish nature. He has been consoling Guy on the difficulties of dancing.' "'Can't you dance?' said Lady Eveline, looking at him with compassion. "'Such is my melancholy ignorance.' said Guy. "'We have been talking of teaching him,' said Laura. "'Talk? Will that do it?' cried Lady Eveline, springing up. "'We will begin this moment. Come out on the lawn. Here, Charles,' willing him along. "'No, thank you. I like it,' as Guy was going to help her. "'There, Charles. Be fiddler. Go on. Tum-tum-tea. That'll do. Amy, Laura, be ladies.' I'm the other gentleman, and she stuck on her hat, in military style, giving it a cock. She actually set them quadrilling in spite of adverse circumstances, dancing better, in her habit, than most people without one, till Lord Kilcran arrived. While he was making his visit, she walked a little apart, arm in arm with Laura. "'I like him very much,' she said. "'He looks up to anything.' I had heard so much of his steadiness that it is a great relief to my mind to see him so unlike his cousin. Eveline, no disparagement to the captain, only I am so dreadfully afraid of him. I am sure he thinks me such an unmitigated goose. Now, doesn't he? If you would but take the right way to make him think otherwise, dear Ava, and show the sense you really have. That is just what my fear of him won't let me do. I would not for the world let him guess it, 
so there is nothing for it but sauciness to cover one's weakness. I can't be sensible with those that won't give me credit for it. But you'll mind and teach Sir Guy to dance. He has so much spring in him. He deserves to be an Irishman. In compliance with this injunction, there used to be a clearance every evening. Charles turned into the bay window, out of the way, Mrs. Edmonston at the piano, and the rest figuring away. The partnerless one, called Puss in the Corner, being generally Amabel, while Charlotte, disdaining them all the time, used to try to make them imitate her dancing master's graces, causing her father to perform such caricatures of them as to overpower all with laughing. Mr. Edmonston was half Irish. His mother, Lady Maybell Edmonston, had never thoroughly taken root in England, and on his marriage had gone with her daughter to live near her old home in Ireland. The present Earl of Kilcrin was her nephew, and a very close intercourse had always been kept up between the families, Mr. and Mrs. Edmonston being adopted by their younger cousins as uncle and aunt, and always so called. The house at Allenby was in such confusion that the family there expected to dine nowhere on the day of the ball, and the Hollywell party thought it prudent to secure their dinner at home, with Philip and Mary Ross, who were to go with them. By special desire, Philip wore his uniform, and while the sisters were dressing, Charlotte gave him a thorough examination, which led to a talk between him and Mary on accoutrements and weapons in general. But while deep in some points of chivalrous armor, Mary's waist was pinched by two mischievous hands, and a little fluttering white figure danced around her. "'Oh, Amy, what do you want with me?' "'Come and be trimmed up,' said Amy. "'I thought you told me I was to have no trouble.' "'I am dressed,' said Mary, looking complacently at her full folds of white muslin. "'No more you shall, but you promised to do as you were told.' and Amy fluttered away with her. "'Do you remember,' said Philip, "'the comparison of Rose Flamick "'dragging off her father "'to a little carved cherub "'trying to uplift a solid monumental hero?' "'Oh, I must tell Mary,' cried Charlotte. "'But Philip stopped her "'with orders not to be a silly child. "'It is a pity Amy should not have her share,' "'said Charles.' "'The comparison to a Dutch cherub?' asked Guy. "'She is more after the pattern of the little things on little wings in your blotting-book,' said Charles. "'Certain lines in the predicament of the cherubs of painters, heads, et praetaria, nethill. "'Oh, Guy, do you write verses?' cried Charlotte. "'Some nonsense,' muttered Guy, out of countenance. I thought I had made away with that rubbish. Where is it? In the blotting book in my room, said Charles. I must explain that the book is my property, and was put into your room when Mamma was beautifying it for you, as new and strange company. On its return to me, at your departure, I discovered a great accession of thoughts and sailing vessels beside the aforesaid little things. I shall resume my own property, said Guy, departing in haste. 
Charlotte ran after him to beg for a sight of it, and Philip asked Charles what it was like. A romantic incident, said Charles, just fit for a novel, a Petrarch leaving his poems about in blotting books. Charles used the word Petrarch to stand for a poet, not thinking what lady's name he suggested, and he was surprised at the severity of Philip's tone as he inquired, Do you mean anything, or do you not? Perceiving with delight that he had perplexed and teased, he rejoiced in keeping up the mystery. Eh? Is it a tender subject with you, too? Philip rose and, standing over him, said, in a low but impressive tone, I cannot tell whether you are trifling or not, but you are no boy now, and can surely see that this is no subject to be played with. If you are concealing anything you have discovered, you have a great deal to answer for. I can hardly imagine anything more unfortunate than that he should become attached to either of your sisters. A pourquoi? asked Charles coolly. I see, said Philip, retreating to his chair and speaking with great composure. I did you injustice by speaking seriously. Then, as his uncle came into the room, he asked some indifferent question without betraying a shade of annoyance. Charles, meanwhile, congratulated himself on his valor in keeping his counsel, in spite of so tall a man in scarlet. But he was much nettled at the last speech, for if a real attachment to his sister had been in question, he would never have trifled about it. Keenly alive to his cousin's injustice, he rejoiced in having provoked and mystified the impassable, though he little knew the storm he had raised beneath that serene exterior of perfect self-command. End Chapter 7 Part 1